Let's remain standing as Ed comes to read to us from God's word. Ron, sorry, Ron comes to read to us from God's word this morning. The word of the Lord from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the reading of God's word. Please be seated. When it uh, comes to everybody's favorite Christmas story, um, I'm going to date myself here a little bit by saying I have a feeling that if we were honest, it would probably be the Charlie Brown Christmas special, right? I mean, who can forget? the Peanuts kids singing those Christmas carols and dancing around the Christmas tree and all of those wonderful things. But a big part of that is found in the fact that Linus, in that Christmas special, recites the last seven verses, Luke, well, not the last seven verses, but Luke chapter 2, verses 13 through 20. And after going through that very familiar Christmas story in the King James Version, he walks over to Charlie Brown and he says very, just dispassionately, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. It's a true Christmas classic, and we'll be reading that text, I'm sure, this evening, if the Lord is willing. Less popular, and, but just as apropos to what Christmas is all about, is a text from the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, where the Apostle Paul records a vision that he had, writing, and a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and with on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. 
and she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. See, this vision, this story that takes such a very dark and very symbolic form still gets to the very heart of what's happening in all of those other scripture texts which are so much more familiar and therefore more comfortable for us. While the woman in Revelation signifies something more than just Mary of Nazareth in Galilee, still in Luke 2, when we read that while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, all of the expectation that has been building through the scriptures since Genesis chapter 3 regarding the woman and her seed, the one who had crushed the head of the serpent, all focuses then on that one young woman, Mary, who is crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So really, never mind the Christmas card nativities that gloss over the blood and the sweat that is an inevitable part of the birthing process. A few weeks ago, I commented that Mary made a 70-mile round trip to visit her cousin Elizabeth, and then after arriving back in Nazareth, she walked another 70 miles with her husband Joseph to get to Bethlehem for that registration that was taking a place across the Roman Empire. And some people pointed out that I didn't seem compassionate enough for a woman who was pregnant walking that distance, and, and maybe I wasn't. Um, I think that in those days when everybody literally walked everywhere. People were probably in a lot better shape than we are today, and the thought of a trip of that length would have been far less daunting for them than it was for us. But I also find it a little bit amusing that when we come to the manger, when we come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing, a lot of times we completely overlook what happened there. And we act as though Mary, because, you know, in some traditions they would say that she was a lot more than what she really was, and Jesus, because he was the son of God, must have experienced the easiest birth on the history of the planet. She must have just, you know, popped out the baby and no sweat. You know, then she knelt and prayed beside him while angels and wise men and shepherds adored. But there's no reason at all to believe that. There's no reason to believe that Christmas song that says, Little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. It was a night like any other night in Bethlehem when a young woman was in the agony of giving birth and her cries could be heard for some distance. This was her inheritance from her great-grandmother Eve, passed down from mother to daughter, from generation to generation. Since that day in the garden, when God said to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. That's what Jesus came to undo. But it had not been undone yet. And speaking of the Garden of Eden, there was a dragon there. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. That same dragon is found in the text that I read from Revelation chapter 12 verse 3. A great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. And in verse 4, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. Well, understand, here we're talking about Bethlehem, we're talking about Mary, we're talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the dragon stood before her so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now I realize this is not 
a Charlie Brown kind of Christmas story, but it's a biblical kind of Christmas story, the kind that gets to the truth behind that starry, starry night so long ago in Bethlehem, the kind that reminds us that the protagonist of the story was never Mary or Joseph or the shepherds or the wise men or even the angels, but ultimately the protagonist of the story is the one who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And that's what Christmas is about, Charlie Brown. It's about Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God. But there's also a dragon that's part of this story in Revelation and in the gospel according to Matthew. And here the part of the dragon will be played by Herod the Great, who had been appointed by Rome as king of the Jews. And it will be played by him because after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now there's a lot that could be said of the dragon in this particular incarnation. According to one Jewish source, Herod's ethnic and religious background was complicated. On his father's side, he was an Idumean Jew. In other words, he was an Edomite, which you might recognize as a descendant of Esau. He was from a family of Idumean converts. On his mother's side, he was a Nabataean. His mother was a Nabataean princess from an Arabic tribe in southern Jordan. Moreover, as an aristocrat in Judea, he had both a Hellenistic, a Greek, and a Jewish upbringing. But in addition to all of that complicated ethnic and religious background, Herod the Great was exactly the sort of king that the dragon was looking for in this moment because he was always very, very paranoid about people who might have an eye on his throne. So paranoid, in fact, that in 29 BC, probably about 25 years before Jesus was born, Herod executed his wife, Miriam, and her mother along with her. A few years later, he accused two of his sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, of high treason, which led to a trial and ultimately to their execution. The execution of Herod's sons, he would kill another one later on, led to a famous quip by Caesar Augustus, who is recorded as having said, it's better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son, presumably because with Herod's adopted religion, his pig would be safe from the butcher's knife, unlike his own flesh and blood. There's much more that we could say, but when the Magi arrived asking, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? The one thing of which Herod the Great was completely certain was they were not talking about him. And that was a problem. It was a problem for him. It was a problem for the dragon too because the dragon had been there in Eden when God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise, or perhaps a better translation would be crush. He will crush your head and you will crush or bruise his heel. And in those words, the perennial battle, the seed of the dragon versus the seed of the woman was begun. And it's safe to say that Satan has prosecuted this long war against the seed of the woman to this very day. It's not hard to see at all. He's done so with the same paranoia that can be seen in our text this morning. What king, 
What leader, what ruler wants to hear that his replacement has been born and is on the way? A few weeks ago, we were looking at Nebuchadnezzar and that dream that he had of the statue with the four different empires, and we saw how he responded to that similar news, saying, nah, I'm just going to build a statue that's all of gold. And if you want to start from the very beginning and go back to the book of Genesis chapter 3, it's not insignificant at all that having heard the word of the Lord, that God would put enmity between the serpent and the woman and between her offspring and his offspring. In the very next chapter, Cain rises up against godly Abel and strikes him down. And then walk through the scriptures and see all of the other times that Satan, the dragon, makes this attempt. Think of Judah, the one who established the tribe from which would we be born the king who would rule over God's people. Think of him calling for Tamar to be burned alive, not knowing at the time that she's carrying the next forefather of the Christ. Think of Pharaoh who had a paranoia of which Herod's is just a distant echo that led him to order the destruction of a whole generation of Hebrew children from every tribe in that race. Think of Athaliah, the queen mother, seeking to kill the entire royal family of Judah to say nothing of the practice of child sacrifice, which was so prevalent across the face of the ancient world and which continues by way of the scourge of abortion right down to this day. As John wrote, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when, he bore her when she bore her child, he might devour it. This is a strategy that Satan has used from time immemorial. Or as we see the same thing in Matthew chapter 2, verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men, secretly ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, saying, go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And we know, of course, what was in his heart as he said this, but after listening to the king, they went on their way. And this part of the story is so familiar. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came over to rest until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then having found and worshipped the true king of the Jews, and having been warned by God in a dream, they departed into their own country by another way. And by the way, that act of civil disobedience, that too, was an act of worship. They had come to worship the king, they had given their gifts, they had fallen down before the son, but when the father warned them in a dream not to return to Herod, they worshipped God by choosing to disobey the king's order and going home by another way, which was probably not as easy as it might sound, not in those days. And because we'll be talking about something similar in a couple more weeks when we get to the sermon that I missed in this Advent series because I had to go away, I just want to point out that aside from the dream that they had, the, disciple, or the, 
the wise men had no reason to doubt the word of the king. The word of the king said, this is all for the good. When you have found him, come back to me. Tell me where you found him that I too may go and worship him. But they had a dream and they realized that was disingenuous and they chose to disobey the king's order. They went home by another way which in those days would have led them well around the way they needed to go, which was through Jerusalem. But it feels like there's a certain urgency here because when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Because that's what dragons do. That's what the dragon had been doing since the fall, and this time he may have had a pretty good idea of exactly the stakes here. So Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night. This time it really was at night. And they departed to Egypt, and they remained there until the death of Herod. Just to prove that all things come to us not by chance, but from the fatherly hand of God even this. This flight into Egypt was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Sometimes much is made of this flight into Egypt these days. You'll hear people say Jesus was a refugee. And I suppose that's true to a certain extent. But if so, remember that he became one by the decree of God. And in reality, this flight into Egypt was just the first step in that event that's described in Revelation chapter 12 as him being caught up to God and to his throne. It was the first point at which God divinely intervened to protect him during the course of his life. And what I'm saying is there's nothing of coincidence. There's nothing of accident associated with any part of the life or the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. His birth took place as it did to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophets, just point by point, where for hundreds of years, God had been saying, this is how it will be. And then Jesus is born, and all of those prophecies are fulfilled. Every event of his life and his death as well, the same thing. Prophecies are being fulfilled because God is in charge. God is in control of all of these things. And here at his birth, God rescued Jesus and Joseph and Mary. But dragons being dragons, Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And here too, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramach, weeping, and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Of this event, the old Puritan Matthew Henry wrote, little children have always been taken under the special protection not only of human laws but of human nature. And I have to just stop and wonder what Matthew Henry might think of the very unpuritanical age in which we live where that is no longer true. But he went on to say, yet these are sacrificed to the rage of this tyrant under whom, as under Nero, innocence is the least security. 
Herod was throughout his reign a bloody man. It was not long before that he destroyed the whole Sanhedrin or bench of judges. But blood to the bloodthirsty is like drink to a drunk. And still verse 19 spells the ignominious end of this tyrant. And ultimately of all tyrants, verse 19 tells us Herod died. And so having played his part, Herod the Great exits the stage as we all do. But there's more to it. Because Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah chapter 40. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is God who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. See, Herod was there because God put him there. And Herod was removed because God said, enough. But we're talking about two kings here, not just Herod who fancied himself king of the Jews. We're also talking about the one who was born king of the Jews. And he was king of the Jews because by virtue of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, he actually is king of kings and lord of lords. He's king over all nations, king over the universe. The one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. The stone that struck the empires of the world, breaking them in pieces, and then becoming a mountain that filled the whole earth. The son of God who preserves his saints through the rage and fury of dragonish rulers and states. The lamb by whose blood the dragon was defeated and cast down. The son of man who ascended with the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Sometimes when I'm working with my colleague and brother in Christ, Matt, and we're sort of mapping out where sermons are going to go, he'll ask me, well, what's the big idea? What's, what's the point, the preaching point in this sermon? And I'll say, well, Jesus Christ is Lord. And he'll say, well, that was last week. I'm like, yeah, and it's going to be next week and the week after that as well. And I know this has been the point of this whole series. It is the point, in fact, of the gospel. And if the Lord is willing, we'll consider more about that text I just read tomorrow. In the meantime, this morning, an old adage says, wise men still seek him. And it's true. But always remember the wisdom was not found in the seeking. The wisdom was found in the finding. Remember that the Magi didn't come looking for a baby. They came seeking him who was born king of the Jews. And when they found him, they did not present him with gifts that were suited to a child. It's the strangest baby shower ever if that's what it was supposed to be. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. Spices that were typically associated with death and burial. But they offered gifts that were worthy of a king. And then they fell down and they worshipped. 
I want you to understand something I've talked about before in this series and on other occasions. They worshipped Jesus in his state of humiliation. Reformed theologians make that distinction between Christ in the state of humiliation, Christ when he became man, when he lived on earth, when he suffered all of the things that we suffer as human beings in this world, ultimately leading to his death on the cross. They distinguish between that and Christ in his state of exaltation. Christ, risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father and seated there at his right hand to rule the nations with a rod of iron. We cannot come to Bethlehem. We cannot come to the manger. We cannot come and worship a newborn king because that was something that happened 2,000 years ago. And that baby grew up and he died on a cross for our sins. He was buried He descended into hell. He was raised up the third day and he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We cannot worship him in his state of humiliation because he is not in that state anymore. He has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. They worshiped Jesus in that state of humiliation, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. We see him who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That's what he did when he came into the world 2,000 years ago. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And why? Why did God highly exalt him and give him that name? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it's good that we come in this season of the year and we remember the incarnation and we remember the humbling that Christ took upon himself in order to become our Lord and Savior. But we cannot wait until Ascension Day and pretend as if in the meantime he is not seated at the right hand of God the Father. We are called now to bow the knee, to fall before the exalted Christ just as those wise men fell down before the newborn Christ and to confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's how we worship Christ. Not Christ the newborn king, but Christ the king of kings. And that's what Christmas is really all about. Let's pray. So most gracious Lord, May we evermore your splendor see and may we bow and worship and may we proclaim in word and deed that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory, our God and our Father. We pray in his name, amen.